Well, thank you very much. It's, it really is wonderful to be here. I was, there's, this is the 50th year anniversary of Humanae Vitae, right? I've been speaking about it for, hmm, I hate to tell you how long, something like 30 some years, 20 some years, a lot of years, 30 years. And there's, I'm speaking at something like 22 conferences this year. That's an amazing thing, that there's 22 areas of the United States that want to have conferences on Humanae Vitae. That's a sign of progress, all right? But someone said to me, I said, where are, you, where are you going today? I said, I'm going to Christendom. So they said, well, I guess it's kind of first come, first serve, right? As if you're just not important. You know, like there's bigger, bigger places I could go. And I said, oh my goodness. <laughs> I said, this is just, it's an honor to be here. I said, but I also want to, you want to honor Christendom College. You want to say this is the kind of place that's turning out young people that are precisely the people that are going to be able to contribute to the progress of the understanding of Humanae Vitae. I'm going to a couple other small colleges, Benedictine, Dallas, and I think they're as important as the, the major universities uh, that I go to for what is happening there. So I want to say, um, Something's telling me my, something's expired over here. But anyway, I think we'll be able to still do it. Okay. Um, so anyway, it's great, to, it's great to be here. And obviously, many of you are very young, and many of you uh, ha were not around when Humanae Vitae was issued in 1968. Um, I was. I was 18 years old in 1968, graduated from high school in 1968. I have no recollection of Humanae Vitae uh, being promulgated. It wasn't until uh, several years later. But 1968 uh, was quite a remarkable year. We'll talk about that a little bit. But some of you don't know, again, that um, when Humanae Vitae came out, it was, kind of a, it was kind of a bomb that just went off, right? That um, it changed the church for the last 50 years. It took us, well, things got a whole lot better in the 1990s. But we've had many decades of difficulty in the church because of dissent from Humanae Vitae. The phenomenon of dissent began with Humanae Vitae, and it didn't really, we'll see whether it's come to a halt or not, but great things happened when the catechism was published. We finally had a document that, if you were fighting, that said what the church taught. Before that, if you were trying to make the claim that church teaches that contraception is, is wrong, people would say, oh, well, yeah, they, it, it, Humanae Vitae said that, but, um, before long, the church will change its teaching. And Father so-and-so at such university and Father so-and-so at such university says that that teaching is based on an inadequate understanding of natural law, and the church will soon change its teaching. And honestly, that's what uh, seminarians were taught from about 1968, uh, well into the 90s. Right? So if you run into priests that are, oh, it's going on its own here. <laughs> All right, well, we'll just try to get in sync. All right, so that's what priests and seminarians were taught uh, in the seminary, that the, the church would eventually change its teaching and that they were not to disturb the consciences of the faithful in the confessional. So if someone confessed to contraception, um, which well, it might show that they had a little guilt about it, but you know, maybe people just go and confess things they don't feel guilty about, and uh, the priest would say, don't worry about it. If, if you're okay with that in your conscience, it's okay to contracept. So you never heard about it from the, the pulpit or almost anywhere else in Catholic universities. Uh, it simply wasn't taught. Again, uh, this, talk, this one says that there could be, a, it's a rebellion in the Catholic Church. Pope Paul VI wrote um, Humanae Vitae, 1968, and he was they kind of a tortured man, as they say. We'll talk somewhat about the background that led to his uh, writing Humanae Vitae. But it really, it disturbed everybody. This is Time Magazine. So it wasn't just a little teaching of the church, right? It was something that caught national and international attention. Whoops. Yep, all right, it's going on its own. Um, so this is 1968. There were, you, you maybe you've been reading the newspapers about the resistance that are at the different universities and colleges. And um, in 1968, we had all of that. Uh, I never knew whether classes were going to be in session or not at Grinnell College. There were so many uh, protests, right? Uh, protest a minute at uh, Grinnell College. Again, you didn't know whether you got up in the morning whether classes were going to be held that day or not. Uh, when I went to college, I remember sitting in the, the chapel. It was a Methodist chapel, and seniors on the stage telling us freshmen that we should drop out and go do community organizing in Chicago. And, and I, I, 
I was from a small town in Pennsylvania, and I, I was sitting there and thinking, but organize for what? I mean, I don't know anything. I said, I wouldn't have any idea what I should be organizing uh, for. Ah, I think I'll go at the pace of this. This will be good. All right. Um, it'll, it'll keep me moving. It's the same year that um, Martin Luther King uh, was, was killed and Kennedy was assassinated. So again, you almost didn't know when you woke up in the morning, was there going to be an announcement of some major leader who had been assassinated? So 1968 was a very rough year. Ah, yes, this is good. All right, this is, um, this is the protests of the, uh, Baltimore, uh, race riots in the cities around the United States. Um, uh, again, there were, I can't quite see that one. Anyway, yeah, protesting people uh, would not uh, accept their being drafted into the services. Vietnam, you've seen pictures of, of people being, headed, being beheaded. Right, we saw people being uh, shot in the head in, in the TV shows and newspapers we were watching. Uh, you have protests of um, athletes. This was at the 1968 Olympics. So there's a lot of similarity between this year and 1968. People are saying, oh, the universities were never that bad. I want to say, yes, they were. <laughs> in 1968, they were. And you say, well, the, the athlete, athletes were never so belligerent. And I said, oh, yes, they were. <laughs> right? So, and then we had Gloria Steinem, um, the, the growth of feminism, and we've been watching a lot about feminism and, and uh, rights of women. Uh, again, pushing for abortion in 1968, and uh, women burning their bras, right? We have these uh, pink hat, pussy hat um, marches on Washington, D.C. Well, we had the same kind of thing, right, in 1968, right? So I feel like it's a deja vu all over again, as they say, right? Uh, again, people thought the world was in, uh, incredibly overpopulated. It's the year the population bomb came out. And when I was in uh, even middle school, we had uh, pictures of the globe with people falling off uh, the globe. All right. So uh, I hope you know now there's a serious problem with underpopulation in most of, uh, not underpopulation, but declining population, rapidly declining, not replacement rate in uh, most first world uh, countries. But this was, again, we're going to be fighting. They, they made the prediction that by now, in fact, 20 years ago, that we'd be killing each other for food, all right, in, in every country on the face of the earth. So we were living in apocalyptic uh, kind of times. Um, and then we had the Beatles, which were considered to be um, outrageous. So this was the fashion change from long skirts, and that, that was considered to be a short skirt. <laughs> We've gotten shorter than that. But anyway, we went from very modest clothing for the most part to quite immodest clothing in 1968. Um, there we were, happy, happy, happy people, all right? Um, <laughs> completely drugged out. Now, I want you to know, is there, is there a way that I can stop it going automatically? Uh, it's obviously on some... Um, yeah, see, this, this was part of the joke. Okay, but we'll get there. All right, now you see, all of us in 1968 were trying to look like John Lennon. This is for you, Tim. All right, now I'm on the right. Just to tell you this story. In, um, I was a freshman at Grinnell College in 1968, and in 1969, women were, feminists were coming to campus, and they wanted to legalize, have us write letters to legalize abortion. I was 19 in, uh, in the spring of 1969. And I want to tell you, I mean, I, okay, I always have been nerdy, okay, okay, but this wasn't a product of being nerdy. I did not know what abortion was. I was 19 years old. And that was not unusual at that time, right? I lived in a small town in Pennsylvania. We didn't, we never heard of abortion, right? So on my way to the meeting, I stopped at the library to look up abortion. I remember reading it. I was going, oh my gosh, really? Women do this, really? And it said the Catholic Church was against it. And I said, well, I never heard that. I mean, why would they be against it? And I'm reading it. I said, well, it says when human life begins. And it says the key question about abortion is when does human life begin? So I, that sounds right to me. So I went off to this meeting. And very, very innocently, I raised my hand. And I say, I, you know, I'm here and I'm prepared to write letters. But I just want to know when we're going to say uh, that life begins. Because it obviously needs to be protected once it begins. So is that at 12 weeks or you know, 24 weeks, or when does human life begin? And the women that were there just started yelling at me, said, shut up, sit down, we don't need your kind here, okay? 
we don't need you pro-life, you right to lifers. I said, I don't know what a right to lifer is. I said, I didn't know what abortion was until 20 minutes ago. I said, so, I said, so like, what's the, what's the problem? And I'm, you know, and I'm saying, when they say, we don't want your kind here, and I said, well, you know, everybody in this room is trying to look like John Lennon, women as well as men. And I did it as well as, you can imagine, with little wire rim glasses and my hair straight. I mean, I did it as well as anyone else, right? <laughs> But that was a real, that was the beginning of a turnaround for me. I'd been raised Catholic in a very casual Catholic household. You know, uh, mass on Sunday was about it, maybe grace at meals on Sunday, but nothing really beyond that. And um, I'd left it for a little period of time while I went to college, but I, you know, it just kept haunting me that the Catholic Church said abortion was wrong. And people would come up to me and they'd say, we hear you're against abortion. I said, I don't know whether or not I'm against abortion. I said, but I can't hear any good arguments for it. And before long, after about you know two months of that, I was very much opposed to abortion. And I just kind of drifted back to church. I said, I want to go. I want to go to church where people know <laughs> that it's wrong to kill babies in the womb. And it wasn't until many years later, when I was a graduate student and doing a lot of pro-life speaking. Uh, in fact, it was even after that I did a lot of pro-life speaking in Toronto, and people would ask me the question, you know, well. Uh, you're opposed to abortion, what, what about contraception? And I'd say, oh, they're totally different issues. I said, one stops a life that's already begun, and one prevents a life from beginning. And so that I don't, you know, they're totally different issues. Then I went to Notre Dame, where I taught for nine years, and I started doing some sidewalk counseling outside an abortion clinic. And everybody should do that. If you've never done it, everybody should do it, at least for, it may not be your thing, but um, it's very important that you have that experience that these women are coming here and they're going there and they're going to kill their baby. And you're the last ditch possibility of stopping them before they, they go in there. And just to be there for the baby, as they say, just to be there, praying for that baby, praying for that woman, praying for the man if he's there. He's often the one that can make change the situation. But anyway, I was standing there, I'd see these girls coming in and getting, getting abortions. I think, what's bringing them here? Why are all these women getting abortions? I, you know, my little head goes, well, obviously they're having sex. Mm -hmm. And they're having sex with, I guess, someone that they are not prepared to have a baby with. And why are they having sex with someone who's not, they're not prepared to have a baby with? What makes that possible? You know, because if you're having sex, you be, should be prepared for a baby. It's always been a little, I sort of knew that somehow. I said, ah, well, contraception. Contraception makes them think that you don't have to be prepared for baby. You're safe. You're not going to get a, uh, pregnant. And I thought, oh. And I suddenly had a sense of myself as being a person in front of the abortion clinic as someone who's trying to save a baby who was drowning. Right? I said, but who? How'd that baby get dumped in the river in the first place? I said, because of contraceptive sex. So I decided my contribution to the pro-life movement would be to try to convince people to stop contracepting because I thought that was a major cause of abortion. And then I see it's the cause of many, many, many other things, a radical change in our understanding of sexuality, which has led to pornography and homosexuality and all kinds of things. I didn't know that when I started, but as I began to look at it and think about it and read about it, I thought it's not just a tiny little pill, right? It's not just one issue. It's, it's it, it, the number of things that you can trace back to contraception is phenomenal. There's a famous talk by an E. Michael Jones entitled, Why Contraception Causes Drive-By Shootings. It has occasioned much jealousy on my part that he has came up with such a phenomenal title. And it's, <laughs> it's not my title. I think it's a great title. But largely it has to do with uh, people being so angry. And why are people so angry? Because they don't have harmony in their lives. Why do they have harmony in their lives? Because too many people grow up in divorced households and, and they're confused and they're miserable and, or else their relationships aren't going well because they're having sex with people that don't really love them, that they don't really love and they haven't made a commitment to. And you can just go on and on. And that's how contraception causes drive-by shootings. You can do that, right? Where's my, you see I've got water here. <laughs> I'm going to ask you for something else here. I'd like a little glass for this water. Ladies don't drink out of bottles. All right. <laughs> Sorry about that. We need to hold the standards. If the 
if the women over 65 don't hold the standards, nobody will. Is that right? See, I got an older 65-year-old woman clapping for me. There you go. <laughs> I'm just thinking my mother looking down at me and she's saying, I don't care how thirsty you are, you don't drink out of a bottle. But the thing is, I'm thirsty, <laughs> so get me a glass. All right, give me a little more context uh, for Humani Vitae. Uh, and the church's teaching on um, on marriage. Right. Oh my gosh, see something happened here. He says horrible things about contraception. I just want to tell you that it's not coming up. Um, it's coming up in yellow instead of black. See, the, this must be an important talk. Ah, it must be an important talk because you do have my glass. Thank you. That's all right. It was, a, it, was a, it was a lesson that was meant to be taught tonight. <laughs> I had to do the same thing at Ave Maria University in Florida a couple weeks ago, so I want you to know it's, it's not Christendom. It's the modern culture. It even infects the most wonderful places. All right. This talk must be important because the technology is a little bit challenging here because I still have to read this. Right. You can read it better than I can. Whoa. <laughs> All right, it says, the purpose of marriage is not pleasure and ease, but the procreation and education of children and the support of a family. People who do not like children are swine, dunces, and blockheads, not worthy to be called men and women because they despise the blessing of God, the creator and author of nature. Now, how much you like Luther better than you did before, right now, right? Now, can you imagine a, a, a pope saying such a thing, right? But that was a very common opinion. Every Christian church was opposed to contraception until 1930, right? Um, all right, let's assume. Oh, I'm going backwards, sorry. All right. All right, Luther, further, further going on. The exceedingly foul deed of Onan, the basest of wretches, is a most disgraceful sin. It is far more atrocious than incest and adultery. We call it unchastity, yes, a sodomitic sin. For Onan goes into her, that is, he lies with her and copulates, and when it comes to the point of insemination, spills the semen lest the woman conceive. Surely at such a time, the order of nature established by God in procreation should be followed. Accordingly, it was a most disgraceful crime. Consequently, he deserved to be killed by God he committed an evil deed, therefore God punished him. Now, Protestants use this passage much more than Catholics do uh, to um, look to a biblical basis of a condemnation for contraception. John Paul's theology of the body doesn't even, I don't even think it mentions um, the Onan passage. But again, all Christians were opposed uh, to contraception until 1930, um, and part of the reason was this passage. Gandhi, right, not a Christian, uh, spoke about contraception. He said, there can be no two opinions about the necessity of birth control, but the only method handed down from ages past is self-control. It is an infallible sovereign remedy doing good to those who practice it, and medi medical men will earn the gratitude of all mankind if instead of devising artificial means of birth control, they will find out the means of self-control. So you have a Hindu here who is opposed to contraception. Right. Contraception and vice, this is also Gandhi. Artificial methods are like putting a premium upon vice. They make man and woman reckless, uh, really. And the respectability that is being given to the methods must hasten the dissolution of the restraints that public opinion puts upon one. Adoption of artificial methods must result in imbecility and nervous prostration. That was widely believed. That was widely believed, all right? The remedy will be found to be worse than the disease. Right, Comstock, Anthony Comstock, uh, was a Protestant um, minister and a legislator who went to uh, New York at some point and was shocked at the sexual lasciviousness there, the dancing, of the pornography. And there was the only time of kind of contraception that was available at that time was the condom and the um, diaphragm. And he had laws put on the books uh, that 
contraceptives could not be sold, could not be um, marketed, could not be used and distributed. Right? So the, there were laws in the United States, in most states, against contraception until 1965. They were laws put on the books by Protestants, kept on the books largely by Catholics. Right? Margaret Sanger was a huge promoter. She was the founder of Planned Parenthood, as most of you know, and she was a member of the eugenics movement. This is her words. Like the advocates of birth control, the eugenists, for instance, instance, are seeking to assist the race toward the elimination of the unfit. Both are seeking a single end, but they lay emphasis upon different methods. Eugenics without birth control seems to us a house builded upon the sands is at the mercy of the rising stream of the unfit. I wanted to know you wouldn't have your president here today if the rising, the rising tide of the unfit had been stopped. It was largely Irish Catholics that she didn't like, all right? And, and, um, and blacks, right? So she was trying to eliminate poverty by eliminating the poor, right? They were the unfit. That's the heritage of Planned Parenthood. You know, there's more abortions in New York City for blacks than there are live births. Why the whole black community is not up in arms against uh, abortion, I don't know. Right? This is a very sad truth. Um, one of the major inventors of the contraceptive pill was John Rock. He was a Catholic doctor, actually, for a period of his life, a daily communicant. He ended his life um, probably mentally ill and um, no longer a Catholic. And as irony would have it, uh, on, in my early years of teaching at Notre Dame, this young woman came to visit me, and she said she knew of my work, and she was actually a granddaughter of John Rock, right? A very devout Catholic, Opus Dei. And she said she was praying for him every day, right? So God watches. God's after all of us, all right? Um, even John Rock, and the number of Catholics, of course, today uh, in the government and in the medical profession, especially now in our government, how many Catholics have made the bad votes and are the bad leaders on abortion and contraception is very, very sad. Right, now let's get a little bit to church teaching here. Um, this is a book by John Noonan. John Noonan is a very famous Catholic um, jurist and lawyer. Uh, he's written this big book on contraception, a history of its treatment by Catholic theologians and canonists. He wrote one of the best books on abortion that there is, but he wrote this book on contraception in order to ha try to help the church change its teaching on contraception. All right, so he's trying to show that it, the church has always taught that contraception is wrong. We'll see that he can't deny that. But then he said it taught it for so many different reasons, it must not really be that serious about it. Otherwise, there wouldn't have so many a different reason at different periods in history. But this is what he acknowledges. He says, since the first clear mention of contraception by a Christian theologian, when a harsh third-century moralist accused a pope of encouraging it, the articulated judgment has been the same. In the world of the late empire, known to St. Jerome and St. Augustine, then all these different other people, um, bishops in many different places, we go down to the red, the teachers of the church have taught without hesitation or variation that certain acts preventing procreation are gravely sinful. That's 1965. Humanity Vitae came out in 1968. This book was written with the intention of trying to change the church's teaching, but he had to admit, he was an honest scholar, that the church has always taught in all places and all times that contraception is wrong. And he concluded, he said, no Catholic theologian has ever taught contraception is a good act. He said the teaching on contraception is clear and, and then he put a lot of force on this word, apparently fixed forever, right? Not absolutely fixed forever, but apparently fixed forever. Um, not many people have, in the church have said that contraception is a good thing. We're seeing one theologian who did soon, but let me just, he said up to that point, 1965, he said, no Catholic theologian has ever taught contraception is a good act. Now, Costi Canubi was published in 1930. It was published, uh, written by Pius the, um, 11th. It's a beautiful, beautiful document, right? And it's a beautiful statement about why contraception is wrong. 
It was written because the Anglican Church at the Lambeth Conference of 1930 had for the, for, broke for the first time with the unbroken Christian tradition against contraception. And it said for serious reasons, spouses uh, within marriage can use contraception. If you read the, the, um, the deliverances or the deliberations at that time, um, there was no theological arguments, no philosophical arguments. It's just that people are having big families and that's hard. And so if they want to use contraception, we should allow them to do it. So Pius XI wrote Casti Canubi. It's a, again, it's well worth reading now. You'll, you'll see it's a beautiful statement. But even at that time, theologians were asking, is this an infallible teaching? And most of them said yes. This has just has been the constant teaching of the church throughout uh, history. So Kosti Kanubi is not coming up with anything new. It's just reiterating what the church has always taught. Yes, this is a picture of the Lambeth Conference. Now this book is fascinating, American History, Catholics and Contraception by Leslie Woodcock Tentler. She looks at the practice of contraception since the early part of the last century through to, she said to, up till the 2000s, but she didn't, she stopped at 19, 1970, which is an interesting point of stopping two years after Humanae Vitae came out. But what she, she tells a story of Catholic, American Catholics enthusiastically embracing the church's teaching it had become a very contraceptive culture since Lambeth. Protestants were using contraception. You could, I'm going to come back to that. Uh, you could tell in my neighborhood uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, I think we were the only Catholics on the, on the street. We had six kids. Uh, everybody else were Protestants. They had three or four. And you could almost tell who was Catholic by the number of children they had. Catholics had four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, and Protestants had not two at that time. Two was too few but people had three, three or four. So Protestants were contracepting and Catholics were not. But she tells the story, she said, many laity admired their church's increasingly lonely defense of a procreative sexual ethic. Many shared their clergy's anxieties when it came to emancipated views of sex. And a great many Catholics responded with a visceral surge of tribal loyalty. I kind of like that, right? A visceral surge of tribal loyalty when public proponents of birth control attacked the Catholic Church. The story was one of idealism, too, especially after the Second World War, when the teaching was increasingly presented in personalist terms, interesting, and in a context of national prosperity. So Catholics were having lots of kids and loving it, felt proud of it, happy to have their big families, happy to be able to support their big families. Now, this book also was written in service of, of helping the church change its teaching on contraception. She says with you know, population problems and feminism in the, in the 60s, et cetera, uh, that, that obviously the church should change its teaching. But she tells about religious orders uh, and priests and parishes. They were expected to, they, in, she's from Detroit. So she went into the archives of, of the Diocese of Detroit. And she found out that there were syllabuses, syllabi of topics that priests were expected to speak upon. Um, preach upon in the course of any year. And contraception was one of those. They were expected to give a, a homily each year on contraception. Some of them left it to uh, the religious orders, the redemptors or the passionists that would come to do a retreat or a mission. And Wednesday night was usually the sex night. And they were talking against all the wrong sexual acts that people are inclined uh, to perform. And one of them uh, was contraception. So Catholics were well-educated. In 1960, something like 66% of Catholics had never contracepted, right? Um, now it's 98% of those who are sexually active had you have used contraception at some time, right? Most people have never heard a homily uh, on contraception, right? One of the most wonderful things <laughs> that ever happened was John Paul II's book, uh, Love and Responsibility. Uh, written in about 1959, right? uh, uh, the, the best philosophical defense that you can find, uh, both on natural law terms and personalist terms of the church's teaching on, on sexuality. So this was a passion of John Paul II's long before he was John Paul II. Sorry, I've, my fingers are now doing some of this. Um, a little bit spastic up here for some reason. All right. So Carol Wojtyla, 1960, 59, 60, wrote this phenomenal book, right? Um, 
and it, it, it formed a lot of people's thinking uh, within the church, especially Paul VI. In theological studies in 1962, 1962, said, since theological discussion of the anovulant drugs began some four or more years ago, moralists have never been less than unanimous in their assertion that natural law cannot countenance the use of these progestational steroids for the purpose of contraception as that term is properly understood in the light of papal teaching. As I said, up until the late 1950s, the only contraceptives that were available were the condom, the, di the diaphragm, and of course, um, withdrawal. And then there was the invention in the late 1950s of the contraceptive pill. And some theologians said, well, maybe that will be okay because the other things interrupt the structure of the sexual act. And so that since the pill doesn't do that, maybe the, all the pill does is extend the period of infertility. And they actually thought maybe a woman could choose which day of the month she would be infertile. And that would help um, people plan their family size better. Right? So, but when the theologians looked into the reality of the contraceptive pill, they said no. It's, it's, it's something that, inter that is incompatible with God's plan for sexuality. Right? It's preventing it's trying to prevent the procreative possibility of a sexual act. Paul VI, um, he's, he, he inherited from Pope John XXIII a commission, I think it was six or eight theologians, who had been uh, commissioned to talk about how the church could and should teach its teaching in the modern world. And everybody was sort of antsy about overpopulation. And the UN was starting to have conferences about overpopulation. And they were clearly going to be pushing the contraceptive pill as a solution to the overpopulation problem. So the Catholic Church said, how are we going to teach our teaching um, in this world? All right. It's back still to Paul VI. He, he took over that commission when he became priest and uh, put 66 people on the commission, un unheard of before. Lay people who were family life officers, who were demographers, sociologists, some, of course, some theologians, historians, right, to examine the question of contraception. It seems, I mean, there's, 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 it's not exactly clear. I've always thought that um, the purpose of the commission was basically how to teach the teaching in the modern world, where the world's overpopulated. But there's some evidence that he might have been open to talking about the morality of contraception. I don't think so, but there's a few statements here and there. But anyway, he gave this over to 66 people. And they met at the same time that uh, the Vatican Council was meeting. And the Vatican Council basically decided at one point, there were not it didn't decide, but there was a strong movement within the Vatican Council to not to take up the question of contraception and to leave it to the special commission. And Paul VI said no. There were going to, there's going to be a statement about contraception in Gaudium at, oh, I'll have to come back to it, in Gaudium at Spes. And he sent over a number of footnotes to the council that he wanted inserted. And they were footnotes that again showed that the church had always taught that contraception was wrong. So he was clearly signaling that the church always teaches, has always taught that contraception was wrong and it teaches it now. The story of this commission is written in different places. One is this book, Robert McClory was the editor of the National Catholic Reporter, and he writes the story about uh, the special commission. Many things happened there, but at a certain point, it was pretty clear that the commission was going to vote that the church could and should change its teaching on contraception. And a wonderful Jesuit named John Ford uh, was very, very upset by this. And he had certain meetings with Pope Paul VI and said, you've got a runaway commission on your hands. You have to shut it down. They are not uh, corresponding to church teaching. And Pope Paul VI put 15 new people on the commission, all cardinals and archbishops and bishops, and made them the only voting members. Right? He was trying to control the commission. Right. When, they, when they voted, whether the church could and should change its teaching. Nine said yes, no said three, and three abstained. Right? So you have the very people that Pope Paul VI put on the commission to sort of rein it in went along with this. Um, very, two very famous moral theologians were part of that commission. 
Bernard Herring, and Joseph Fuchs. Bernard Herring, a redemptorist, Joseph Fuchs, a Jesuit. Fuchs went in to the commission very much opposed to contraception. He wrote one of the best books on natural law and on marriage. He wrote some great stuff. Bernard Herring went in pretty much pro-contraception. And in the course of the meetings of the commission, Fuchs changed his mind. And that was, a, that was an amazing thing within the Jesuits. Before Humanae Vitae, the Jesuits were among the strongest supporters of the church's teaching on contraception. After Humanae Vitae, they were the, among the strongest dissenters. And a lot of it had to do with Joseph Fuchs. They lined up um, behind him. So it was a shock to everybody that Joseph Fuchs uh, changed his, his position. The commission finished its work sort of. It sort of came to an end. It, they didn't really polish it up and finish it off, but they stopped. They stopped meeting. They had a couple reports that had been written. written. They weren't, weren't really meant to be the final reports of the commission. They just kind of stopped. And um, in 1966. Now, I've served on a few commissions. Uh, and I want to tell you, we're basically pledged to secrecy about what goes on. We're pledged to serve the, the church. Our vote is not meant to be decisive. Right? Our vote is meant to guide the Holy Father. So you can be sure that all of them were told. This is meant to be a, 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 a commission that advises the Holy Father. The Holy Father did not turn it over to a commission to decide what the church's teaching on, on contraception could be. Now, some of the people on the commission got antsy. So they released the documents uh, to the National Catholic Report in the United States and to the tablet in London in 1967. The world went berserk. They really did, right? The church is going to come into the modern world. The church is going to change its teaching. We've got this commission. The Holy Father set up a commission, and the commission voted to change its teaching. And there's Paul VI sitting over there saying, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do now, right? Now, Carol Wojtyla was on that commission, Carol Wojtyla. He also, of course, is considered to be the author of Gaudium et Spes, especially the sections on marriage. Now, he never got to meet with the commission because... The communist government in Poland wouldn't give him visas or permission to go to Rome uh, to meet with a special commission, but he got all their reports. And he set up his own little commission in Krakow, five individuals, theologians and doctors and others. And they wrote a beautiful uh, a report uh, refuting the documents and putting, setting forth a very beautiful vision of marriage and family and sexuality uh, and sent that to Paul VI. It was most likely highly influential on Paul VI in writing um, Humanae Vitae. The minute uh, Humanae Vitae came out, July 25th, 1968, Father Charles Kern was a young theologian at Catholic U, and he held a press conference on the steps of uh, Catholic University of America and announced that Catholics did not need to abide by this teaching. It was uh, based on an inadequate understanding of the natural law and that Catholics should follow their consciences. I hear that not too long ago you, you had Peter Mitchell here, who actually was a former student of mine at the University of Dallas. I'm trying to get credit for what he's done. <laughs> Why not? All right. I'm sure it, I, let me be his parents, all right, and, and maybe himself. Um, Anyway, it's a marvelous, it's a fascinating book. He doesn't hold the church, I mean, he sees a lot of faults with the way that the university and the church handled the situation. But um, at any rate, Charlie Currents, he got some, uh, I think, 600 and some people to sign a petition against uh, Humanae Vitae. And he said when he, knew, he got Bernard Herring to um, sign it, he knew he'd hit, hit, hit gold, right? He hit gold. So from the minute it was promulgated, uh, there was dissent. And dissent quickly took over uh, the universities, the seminaries, everywhere. People were saying, based on an inadequate notion of natural law, that the Holy Father rejected the findings of his own commission. Uh, the church has put out this document, but eventually it will change its teaching. As a matter of fact, in 19, somewhere in the 80s, I think, I went to a, a major seminary, and I was making the kind of remarks I'm, I'm mentioning here. And the theologian professor, priest professor, who said he was a seminarian in that very seminary in 1971. And he said they were never asked to read Humanae Vitae. They were given a copy of Charlie Curran's dissent and were told that the church would eventually change its teaching and that they were not to preach on it or insist on it in the confessional. He told me 10 years later he went to Catholic U to study moral theology. And at a certain point, he decided that intellectual integrity require that he read the document. 
and he read it. And he said, I think it's true. I can't believe I was never taught this in the seminary. He said, but what you're saying is absolutely true. When I was a seminary in 1971, that's exactly what we were taught. Cardinal O'Boyle was the Cardinal of Washington, D.C., and well over 150 priests in Washington, D.C. signed a, a statement of dissent against Humani Vitae. And he um, suspended some of their faculties until they came around. And they complained to, to Rome, and Rome um, told Cardinal Boyle that he had to reinstate their faculties. Right? They were afraid of schism. When I was uh, in the 1970s, but especially in the 1980s at Notre Dame, there was a lot of talk of schism, right? That we were going to have an American Catholic Church, right? That taught the truth about things as opposed to the old Roman Catholic Church. And there was a real fear that there would be a schism within the, the Catholic Church and there would be a Roman Catholic Church and American Catholic Church. So they made Cardinal O'Boyle back down. Well, you can imagine the message that that sent. Right? that dissenters are free to dissent, right? and they will not be disciplined, and Rome will not back up anybody who disciplines them. Right? Again, there had been silence from the pulpit for many, many years, and dissent spread. And as those, even those who wrote the document uh, in the special commission that was saying the church must change, can't change its teaching, they said if you allow contraception before long masturbation will be approved, fornication, divorce, homosexuality, women priests, that all has happened, dissent on many other things. I'll believe you, nobody at that time, nobody ever thought that we would have same-sex marriages in the United States, nobody. Nobody ever thought that you would have transgendered bathrooms and changing rooms in Target, right? Nobody ever thought that, all right? We saw some of what was gonna happen, but what has happened is way more than we saw at the time. This is an excellent book by the great, late Ralph McInerney, What Went Wrong with Vatican II. And he doesn't, it's just a, you know, it's what they call a clickbait, that sort of clickbait, all right? He's not really criticizing Vatican II. He's saying that what happened with, after Vatican II, again, it was hijacked by those who wanted to talk about the spirit of Vatican II, not the letter of Vatican II. So people reinvented Vatican II to mean whatever they wanted it to mean. And he said the real problem was Humani Vitae that people decided that they didn't have to accept Humani Vitae, and again, that had always been taught in the church. And if you can reject something that has always been taught, why can't you reject a whole lot more? Ah, John Paul II. One of my theories on why the Holy Spirit chose him to be the Holy Father was certainly he was good on communism, and certainly he was good on caring for the poor, but there was nobody on the face of the earth that could defend the church's teaching on sexuality better than John Paul II, nobody, right? He was precisely the man that we most needed in order to fight communism, but also to explain to the world the church's teaching on sexuality, particularly contraception. And he wrote uh, before he became Holy Father. <laughs> Maybe you've heard about that, but um, my friend Mikhail Waldstein, I think spent 10 years translating Humani Vitae, actually wrote John Paul II and asked him, is the Italian the original language? And he said, yes, it is. And then a couple, like a year later, he went to Krakow, and this nun came and gave him a big stack of papers that was the theology of the body in Polish. <laughs> John Paul II had written in Polish before he became the Holy Father. So Mikhail had to kind of go back and look at the Polish text, because he wanted the most authoritative text. I think I would have thrown myself off a cliff or become a waitress or something, but that's not what Mikhail Waldstein did. But at any rate, this was an answer to a plea by Vatican II that wanted theologians to go back to um, the scripture and find uh, the scriptural warrant for the church's teachings on matters such as contraception. So John Paul II did all of this before he became the Holy Father. He wrote the authoritative, I think, philosophical text, Love and Responsibility, and then he went back to scriptures. You now it's all about Genesis and uh, many, many, many other scriptural passages, the prophets, etc. Paul. Um, and the last third of this is a defense of Humani Vitae and the church's teaching on contraception. So he took upon himself what Vatican II asked of moral theologians, which was to find a scriptural basis for the church's teaching as opposed to strictly a natural law one. 
it swept the country. This is part of the good news, all right? This is part of the good news is, is the theology of the body. Part of the good news is John Paul II. Uh, conferences all over the place on theology of the body. Theology of the body taught in colleges and universities and seminaries, conferences everywhere. We're ahead of the rest of the world, but the rest of the world is also getting kind of the theology of the body fever, all right? And it does an amazing thing because it is so scripturally based that people begin to see, again, the whole love that God had for his people and man, the body being made in the likeness and image of God that we're meant to be self-giving. And it's such a beautiful vision. And people go back to scripture and they read the Old Testament, the New Testament, and they see the links. And it's, it's just dizzying for people. Um, Catholics know more about the scripture about scripture now than I think in the history of mankind. There's Bible study groups everywhere. When I first started speaking on abortion, I couldn't mention scripture to Catholics. They were suspicious about it. You know, if I said, well, there's there's sign of prenatal life here and there and there, and they go, mm, that's scripture. We'll just let we'll just let the church do that, right? I had to give them scientific arguments. I had to give them scientific arguments. If I went to a Protestant group, go straight to scripture, right? Then you give them the science later. They're happy to know the science, but where is it in scripture, right? So the Catholics now love scripture. We're all reading scripture. We're taking courses, going online, all sorts of things. It's marvelous. Part of the good news here. Right, John Paul II, what a gift to the church. All right, Familias Consortio, again, a beautiful explanation about why contraception is wrong, a beautiful explanation. The first, the first uh, synod he had when he became the Holy Father was on the family, and this is the document that came out of that. And then, as I said, the catechism, an enormous gift, very taught to splendor. Uh, it wasn't about contraception. People think it was, but it was it, against the claim that there's no such thing as intrinsic evil. He put an end to dissent. He put an end to um, proportionalism. Not that all proportionalism went away in dissent went away, but they really did, um, as I say, had a chilling effect, right? You can find very few pro-contraception articles written after very taught to splendor. They just kind of backed away, right? And then Evangelium Vitae, incredible document. Uh, incredible vision, and there he makes the connection between contraception and abortion and in vitro fertilization and euthanasia. It's all one thing. It's all part of the culture of death um, that we have adopted in our culture. But he goes back. It started with contraception. That's where it started. Right? This is an amazing thing. I found this when I was in the Philippines in 1995. They wrote this in 1990. The Philippine bishops apologized to the Filipino people they say it is said that when seeking ways of regulating births, only 5% of you consult God. In the face of this unfortunate fact, we, our pastors, have been remiss. How few are there among you whom we have reached? There have been some couples eager to share their expertise and values on birth regulation with others. They did not receive adequate support from their priests. We did not give them due attention, believing then this ministry consisted merely of imparting a technique best left to married couples. Amazing. Bishops apologizing to the laity because they didn't church teach church teaching. Yes. Only recently, this is continuing that passage, only recently have we discovered how deep your yearning is for God to be present in your married lives. But we did not know then how to help you uh, discover God's presence and activity in your mission of Christian parenting. Afflicted with doubts about alternatives to contraceptive technology, we abandoned you to your confused and lonely consciences with a lame excuse. Follow what your conscience tells you. How little we realized that it was our consciences that needed to be formed first. A greater concern would have led us to discover that religious hunger in you. Again, that's extraordinary. And a couple people have come up and told me already this evening about how um, my, my CD on contraception, why not, helped them come into the church, change their mind on contraception. That beautiful line, only recently have we discovered how deep your yearning is for God to be present in your married lives. And I hear this so beautifully. People say, I heard it, and I realized it was wrong. I say, you know, that says a whole lot more about you than it does about me, that your heart was so ready to hear this, right? 
you wanted to know what the church, you wanted to know the truth. You want to know the truth about this, this topic. And when you hear the truth, you follow it, right? And the, so many priests don't preach it because they think people are going to leave the church. I remember seeing a man named Rex Moses. Think about that name for a while, Rex Moses. Uh, Rex Moses was an evangelical preacher in, in Corpus Christi, Texas. And I went down there to give a conference, and he was also a speaker. And he held up a copy of Humani Vitae. He said, my wife's been, we've been using natural, planning, natural family planning for years because of uh, our involvement in the pro-life movement, and we know that uh, contraceptives, chemical contraceptives are abortifacients. So we've been using natural family planning. This was in the, actually in the 25th year anniversary of Humani Vitae. And he said, my wife said, why don't you read that document? It was published in the Couple to Couple League newsletter, Natural Family Planning Group. And he's, nah, nah, nah. And she said, no, why don't you put it right there? Why don't you read it? So one day he picked it up and he read it. And he said, I read it once. He said, I read it twice. He said, I read it a third time. And he said, I want to belong to a church that, that teaches something like that. And he said himself and his wife and his extended family all came to church that Easter. Right? He said, you think it's going to drive people out of the church he said, I want to tell you it's going to bring people into the church if you really preach this. Beautiful witness, all right? U.S. bishops, this is young people, this is a miracle, right? It's a miracle that 100% of the U.S. bishops fought the HHS mandate. You can be sure, I hate to tell you, that 100% of the bishops are not against contraception, right? But they stood together on this, right? And it was hard for people not to conclude that 100% were against contraception. Right? Glad people falsely concluded that myself. But again, it's, it was a miracle. And uh, the church began to realize that if it doesn't fight for its religious freedom on things like uh, contraception, we're not going to be able to do anything, have Christendom College or anything else. This is chipping away at religious liberty. Right? There are those who rightly say that when the, ch the church kind of stayed out of the attempts to um, legalize contraception in the 1960s. It didn't fight that. It had fought it in the 50s and the 40s and the 30s, but not in the 60s. And they say you know, the church lost its muscle. And when it came time where there was pressure to legalize abortion, the Catholic Church had lost its habit of fighting things in the public square. So it's amazing that it came back. Oh, we got ahead of ourselves. All right, good news. This is Sacred Heart Seminary, the reform of the seminaries. I hate to tell you, but well into the 1990s, seminarians were not being taught, very rarely, very rarely that contraception was wrong. Now it's, it's virtually at every seminary, right? The young men embrace it, they're ready to teach it, they're enthusiastic about it. The world's, I've heard some very good homilies on men trans, men, uh, that's a, a rival school, I meant to take that out. Um, <laughs> gosh! I make up for it in a minute. I make up for it in a minute. All right, there's great NFP groups. There's tons of them. Um, these are great NFP groups that teach different methods of natural family planning that work extremely well. All right, there's this beautiful website called Natural Womanhood that is wonderful on natural family planning. This is an amazing document which was studying how Catholic women uh, think what Catholic women think about the church's teaching on sexuality, about faith, conscience, and contraception. They called up and talked at length on the phone with Catholic women. This is what they found. This is the, I, this, the, I can do cartwheels about this. I, I can't do cartwheels, but if I could do cartwheels, I would do them. <laughs> Said highlight, highlights from the groundbreaking research include the finding that while only 13% of church-going Catholic women completely accept the church's teaching on family planning, that's high to my mind, I hate to say it. I thought it'd be closer to 2%. 13% of church-going Catholic women accept the church's teaching. Acceptance doubles to 27% among young women, 18 to 34, who attend a mass weekly, right? That's precisely the group you might think would be pro-contraception, that would be using contraception. 21% of women between 18 and 34 who attend Mass weekly accept the church's teaching. It climbs higher to 37% among women who both attend Mass weekly and have been to confession within the past year. Right? Living a faithful life le leads to faithful you know, thinking. Uh, of course we want those higher. I want it to be 100%, but believe me, I thought it was much, much lower. I'm very encouraged by this. Something has happened in the last 50 years that is, we're going in the right direction. 
places like this are making a difference, all right? Many secular groups are now, this was in the New York Times, it's not a very good slideshow, but it's a, it's a, it's a slideshow uh, explaining why uh, the bad side effects of all contraceptives. Young women are saying, I've been lied to. These are doing terrible things to my body. There's a, a book by this woman named Holly something or other, right there, something. I can't read it from here, but you can. Called Sweetening the Pill. Um, Ricky Lake, unlikely person, but she wants to do, she's doing a, a documentary on the pill and saying how women have been lied to about it. There's nothing religious about this. I bet women are realizing all the bad physical side effects that contraception has. Right? But, right, so let me say this. Up until quite recently, I was one of the most enthusiastic people on the face of the earth. Right. <laughs> um, I thought things were getting better and better. Universities, schools, uh, priests, seminarians, um, homeschooling, you name it. Uh, newspapers, radio shows, blogs, Catholic churches, strong, strong, strong. It's not, it, I'm quite, obviously that shows not, not even 50% of Catholics accept the church's teaching. But, and I'm not happy with 35%, but where we were, you know, 25 years ago, we have just galloped uh, in um, accepting church teaching. But unfortunately, there's new developments. And, um, as I mentioned before, back in 1968, it was Bernard Herring and Joseph Fuchs out of Rome that really were majorly behind uh, the dissent. They had taught the major in Rome. A lot of dioceses send their best men to Rome uh, to get their degrees, and then they go back to the seminaries or the universities, and they teach everybody else. So if there's difficulty coming out of Rome, it's going to spread. Right? Same now. Right? Um, this is a, a Father Chiodi. Um, and this new Academy for Life member uses Amoris Laetitia to say some circumstances require contraception. Now, we saw before that uh, John Noonan said that no Catholic had ever said that contraception is a good act. Actually, Joseph Fuchs did. It was kind of quiet. He didn't say it loudly. But that was after Humanae Vitae. So up until the point that Noonan was writing before Humanae Vitae, he was right. But... Joseph Fuchs said, yeah, sometimes if you really are thinking you need to limit your family size, you ought to use contraception. It, nobody's been saying that, though. I mean, they suggest it, but still, it's like it's a lesser evil. It's, it's an unfortunate thing, but you can do it. Um, this this uh, Father Coyote, uh, and a, a, a member of the Academy for Life, said that Amoris Laetitia says some circumstances require contraception. They've been having conferences for the last year in Rome with the Gregorian. They're going to continue them at a couple other universities for the next year, where they're really explaining how Amoris Laetitia um, is, a, is a development in moral theology. This another Pontifical Academy for Life member says that the term intrinsically evil is too restricting, right? Again, the dissenters in the seven, six, 60s and 70s all said there's no such thing as intrinsically evil acts. Right. Cardinal Perelin says Amoris Laetitia represents a new paradigm, spirit, and approach. I just discovered this book not so long ago. Amoris Laetitia, un punto di svolta per la teologia morale. Right. A moment of development for moral theology. This book is, is cited by all those other individuals and is promoted at all those conferences. And they're saying Amoris Laetitia is, is radically changing, really, uh, moral theology. Now, I'm not saying that this is John Paul, I mean, uh, Pope Francis's position. This is their interpretation of Amoris Laetitia. They're pushing their interpretation of Amoris Laetitia. It can be interpreted many different ways if anybody's following it, right? following the debate. But these people out of Rome are having major conferences and writing books um, saying that Amoris Laetitia is radically changing moral theology. And more or less at the heart of this is this question of discernment. Again, I'm not saying that Pope Francis is breaking with the tradition, but he is pushing something called discernment. Pope Francis asked Jesuits to see, teach diocesan priests the art of discernment. Pope Francis urges new bishops uh, to something about discernment. <clears throat> so, uh, I mean, discernment is trying to figure out, you know, if, if it should be whether you're doing God's will or not, whether I'm doing God's will, what does God want of me? But many of these who are interpreting Humani, um, Amoris Laetitia in the way that they are 
have a view of conscience that comes from Bernard Herring, which is really a psychological view of conscience, not a Catholic view of conscience. And it really is one where when, I'm, when I choose things, I'm, I'm forming a self. And it's very, very important to be true to yourself and not to let other people impose values upon you, even the church, right? That would be wrong because you're meant to be a self and Christ came to liberate us from law, right? He came to liberate us from law and came to give us the law of liberty, right? And that Christ wants us to, to, to decide in accord with the self that we've been forming. It doesn't mean we're infallible by any remote position. N nobody's holding that the individual always chooses correctly, right? But it's very important that you choose in accord with your values. Otherwise, you will violate and destroy yourself, and you can't be a good moral agent in the future because you will succumb to other authorities instead of trying to be true uh, to yourself. And so this is a lot of this talk that, again, the interpreters are saying that there's, you know, we are supposed to accompany people. And if someone thinks that his life requires him to stay with someone who's not his um, wife in the eyes of the church, you say, well, that's your discernment. That's the best you can do. So that's morally permissible. So this is a new kind of, this, is, this wasn't talked about in the 1960s, in the 1970s, 80s, 90s. This is new. Um, but discernment, obviously, is a very good practice in the church. Uh, but usually you start with people in a state of grace, right, who are trying to determine God's will, not their own values. Uh, and so it's a shift in an understanding of what uh, discernment is. The good news, more good news, is that we have many more resources than we did back in 1968 and 1993, 25th year anniversary. Again, we have all the, we have so many universities, we have new co colleges from the ground up. Um, we, we have we found a new statement by John Paul II where he prophetically defends Humanae Vitae in a never before translated speech. This is not that speech, but one in, I was actually, I was actually at this conference in 1988, um, and this is what John Paul II said in an address to that group. He said, it is not indeed a doctrine invented by man, church's teaching on contraception. It has been inscribed by the creative hand of God in the very nature of the human person and has been confirmed by him in revelation. Putting it into discussion, therefore, amounts to refusing to God himself the obedience of our intelligence. It is equivalent to prefer preferring the radiance of our reason to the light of the divine wisdom. Falling thus in the darkness of, of, of the error and en of, so it should be error, and ending up making a dent in other mental uh, fundamental points of Christian doctrine. I mean, John Paul II says, if you accept the church's teaching on contraception, you are being true to yourself, right? This is the self that God has made, one that wants to be um, obedient to God. That obedience is not a bad word. Jesus always said, I'm obedient to the Father. I said, I came to be obedient to the Father. I've only done the Father's will. And if you want to be one with me, you will keep the commandments. And those of us who know who Jesus was and who God was, one truth, I said, there's, of all the truths in the world, I think maybe, maybe this is the most important one. But what is it? God's will is better than mine, right? God's will is better than mine. And if there's a conflict between me and God about something, I want God to win, right? I don't want to win. I want God to win because his will is better than mine. And his will is for my good, right? So it's not as if he's willing something other than my good. And he knows what my good is better than I know what my good is. So if he's taught his church to teach this teaching on contraception, of course, they don't believe that. They, be they don't believe this is an infallible uh, teaching. Okay, more resources. We have people like Professor Seifert who uh, rebuked the Academy Life member. We have many, many more people in a position to um, counter the arguments of the dissenters. But I have to say they're way ahead of us. They publish their books, they're having their conferences, they're having their press conferences, and we're standing there saying, I didn't think this was gonna happen until um, July 25th. <laughs> So I'm sort of, I'm, I'm caught off guard, honestly, I have to say. I open it up and say, what's today that I didn't anticipate? This is beautiful. This just came out by um, Bishop Aquila in Denver. It's a, it's a pretty long, it's, but it's a beautiful, beautiful document. 
defending Humanae Vitae on its 50th year anniversary. Sometime I'm going to have to find out someone never who might know, did he intend to issue it this early? Or was he, did he just decide that that's, uh, it was now, it had to be done, because there's so much stuff coming out of Rome. Do we need this? I suspect there's going to be a lot of U.S. bishops who issue pastoral letters supporting Humanae Vitae. It's going to be very exciting watching those roll out. So watch for them, right? We, we don't have 100%, but we have a lot. And they're, 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 they know the issue. They know how to deliver it in uh, very personalist terms. Again, there are some 22 conferences this year. One of the major ones is at Catholic University of America, where dissent started in America, right? There's a poetic justice here that 50 years later, Catholic University of America is holding a major academic conference, sorry, on um, Humanae Vitae. The US Bishop's website has a list of all the known conferences so far. So if you want to get to one, you can go there and see what the list is. This is one that's going to be in California on right around the date, 25th. Um, oops, there you are. Wait a second. Um, this is going to be, they think, between 600 to 1,000 people. Uh, this one is not directed so much to academics as to people who are trying to promote Humanae Vitae. Um, places like Christendom College, you see, are part of the good news, right? That they hold a conference like this, they get attendance like this. Uh, it's extraordinary. So, just remember. Kill us another. All right? All right, thank you.